live from Springfield, Ohio, it's Voices in My Head, the official podcast of Rick Lee I am Rick Lee James, and you're listening to Voices in My Head. If you hear this voice today, do not turn in the Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, and a few good dogs. Glad to have you here for episode number 32 of Voices in My Head. This is one episode that I am very excited about, and I know every week I I say that I'm excited, and I am, but this may be my favorite podcast yet, and let me tell you why. Ben DeBono from the Sci-Fi Christian Podcast is here with me today. Well, he's not with me. We had a conversation last week, so he's with me in spirit. But what a great interview that you're going to get to hear today because we're going to talk not only a little about the Sci-Fi Christian Podcast, which is one of my inspirations for starting a podcast. It's really fantastic. Uh, You need to check it out, and you'll hear more about that in the show. But today is the Batman episode. It's the Dark Knight Rises. So I brought somebody who's not only a fine theologian, but also a fan of Batman, uh, so that we can talk together today. And I got to tell you, the conversation, it does have some spoilers. So if you haven't seen the movie, you may want to, you know, stop it around the time the conversation begins. Um, But beyond that, it's not really about Batman. Uh, what we discussed today is kind of, you know, I don't even consider The Dark Knight Rises a Batman movie. I consider it a character study uh, into choices and decisions that are made and consequences to choices. So really, the, the theme of today, I guess, instead of The Dark Knight Rises, it could be subtitled uh, Choices and Consequences, because that's really what we're going to be talking about today, are choices. So if you're not a comic book fan, that's okay. You can still enjoy this podcast today, because Ben has some fantastic things to say. And honestly, I learned a few new things today. Um, well, not today, but I don't know. Hopefully I learned a few good things every day. But whenever I talk with Ben, he's an extremely smart guy and um, very humble and uh, gracious enough to come on the show. I hope I can have him on again in the future. But um, the Sci-Fi Christian is is one of my favorite podcasts, so I appreciate him being on the show today for the very first Sci-Fi Christian uh, slash Voices in My Head crossover. Um, Before we get into that interview, I do have several things that I want to talk about. One being uh, September 7th, which is just a little less than a month away now, Basement Psalms, my live album, is going to be happening. And I'm going to include a preview song this week. I actually took my little Tascam DR40 recorder into the other room just a few minutes ago and recorded a song um, straight through there just so you can kind of get a feel for what it's going to be like. Now, uh, bear in mind that it's going to be a lot better sound quality the night of. This is just simply a little handheld recorder that I have. But it gives you an example of uh, the loop machine and kind of some of the things I do. You may be wondering what I'm talking about when I say a loop machine. Well, you're going to get to hear it on this podcast today. Uh, I'm going to be playing Psalm 105, Give Thanks to the Lord. And uh, it's one of the songs you're going to hear that night. I'm still working them out, still tweaking them a little bit, so you kind of get to hear the creativity live. If you have not decided to come yet, uh, please come from out of state. We've got hotels in the area that um, I know you can get a good deal at. 
Uh, I want to fill up the place that night. I, I want as many people to be a part of this as possible. We need your voices. We need you to sing and be exuberant and clap and laugh at the right places and all that because we're making a live album and we want to get that great live album feel. And the best way to do that is to have a great audience. And I know Voices in My Head listeners, you are the best audience out there. Uh, I'm trying to talk my friend Mark Thompson, past podcast. Uh, guest from Atlanta into driving up for the event, and if he can come from Atlanta, certainly you can come from Parts Unknown as well. You are more than welcome. Please go to rickleyjames.com for more information on that. And at this time, I am going to let you hear what I recorded just a few minutes ago, kind of a little preview of of a song you're going to hear at Basement Psalms, just like I did last week, trying to incorporate more of that music. Here's Psalm 105. Give thanks to the Lord, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, this is a uh, preview of Basement Psalms live, and uh, here's a song I wrote from Psalm 105 called Give Thanks to the Lord, and I'm using the Boss RC300 loop machine to play this song. Uh, Everything you hear, I'm doing myself. There's nothing pre-recorded. Sing out, call his name. 
All right, and if you enjoyed that song and you want to see it uh, and kind of see what I'm doing live, you can actually go to my YouTube page, which is uh, youtube.com slash rljames29. If you have trouble remembering that, go to rickleyjames.com, and there is a link on the page to my YouTube page. So if you can remember my name with .com, you'll be able to find it. Um, that's It's just a, a flip camera. I did it um, just a few minutes ago. Uh, so I recorded an audio with the Tazcam, and then I recorded a video um, on my uh, little flip camera. So I hope you guys enjoy that. I hope you real plan on coming out and being with us on September 7th. Uh, basement Psalms. I'm really excited about this. I'm really nervous um, because, you know, when you're recording live, you don't get to go back and do overdubs or anything. So um, I'm, I'm just, you know, I appreciate your prayers and your help, any support you can give um, that night. 
Well, that's enough of that talk right now. I do want to encourage you all to go to my website at rickleejames.com. You'll see new news there as it happens uh, every week. You also can find links to the Voices in My Head Facebook page. Uh, you can answer question of the week on that Facebook page every week. And uh, you can also give your own input, not only through the Facebook page, but through my website. Keep up on what's going on. I've got several new videos that were released this week. Uh, got a lot of views of a new song that I wrote. You can go there and find. Uh, it's called Till Every. It's called Everything Was Dry. Uh, and uh, just enjoying kind of sharing the creative process. So uh, I'm going to move on from this now because I know you guys are probably tired of hearing me talk about my music and things like that. And uh, if you're coming, I appreciate you you being with me. But I wanted to get into a little news on the show because I think it's just been kind of a bummer news week the last couple of weeks, and I wanted to share maybe some uh, a little more fun or at least interesting news here on our next segment. This just popped into my head. It's news to me. Well, with the tragedy in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, uh, just this past Sunday, and uh, I really... Uh, I feel so terrible for everything that seems to be going on right now in this country. We have, you know, not only the shooting a few weeks ago, which Ben and I talk about in our podcast, but then uh, the craziness of the headlines of the stuff going on with Chick-fil-A. And and, um, and then just on Sunday, you know, literally um, during a worship service, and, and they were Sikhs, they weren't Christians, but they were worshiping in their way, um, and... To me, all houses of worship should be sanctuary, you know, and and um, it's just once again a, a tragedy that even the houses of worship, you know, and uh, are are not respected, and um, not that a, a crazy person with a gun is going to respect much of anything. But my heart goes out to them. Uh, my prayers. I've uh, been praying for the people this week that have lost family members and loved ones. And uh, my thoughts and prayers are with you, as I know that all of our audience is. But with that in mind, I I wanted to share some good news, because I'm just tired of the cruddy news. And so I went online uh, today, and I found a few things. I think the oldest thing I found was from July. Most of it's just within a day uh, old. So I want to share a few stories with you that I found. Uh, this one comes from USA Today's website, and it says, Massachusetts man pays off mortgage with 800 pounds of pennies. That's right. A, Mass a Massachusetts man's notion to pay off his mortgage in pennies started out as a joke 35 years ago, and then it became an obsession and finally turned into a reality, the Milford Daily News reports. So as I'm reading this article, let me give you uh, the summation of it. Uh, this man, I believe his name is Thomas Daigle. In April, he delivered two 400-pound boxes holding more than 62,000 pennies onto the steps of Milford Federal Savings and Loan Association to make his last payment on his home he and his wife Sandra bought when they married in 1977, the year I was born. Um, so Daigle tells the newspaper in this article um, that he just wanted to make the last payment memorable, so he began collecting an average of 2.5 pennies per day through all these years. And he tells the paper that it became something he wanted to do, and he always follows through. Um... He, his only worry was that he just uh, prayed he didn't die first before he actually got to pull it off. So if you want to start collecting your pennies now to pay off a mortgage, I don't know that all banks would appreciate that. Uh, but this Massachusetts man did it. 
then on the the Telegraph, uh, another news source online. This is weird news. Um, the weird weather. It, it, this is actually the headline. It says weird weather rains seaweed over Gloucestershire village. Bemused residents in a quiet suburban street thought there was something fishy about the weather when it literally started raining seaweed. Um, and this this just happened. This is an August 8th news story. Uh, and these people were stunned when they found out that their homes and gardens and cars were littered with smelly marine algae after stormy weather um, swept debris from a beach 20 miles away. And so, of course, they're wondering how this happened, and weather experts are believing that the seaweed was picked up uh, from, I believe it's called Clevedon Beach in North Somerset by a twister during a freak weather conditions on the coast, and then it was then carried through the air and deposited into uh, their streets, and it covered everything. And uh, there was a, a person named Richard Overton who's 55, and he was interviewed, and uh, he collected an entire bucket of the green slime from his front yard, and he said, I looked out the windows after a very big storm finished, and to my amazement, there were lots of flakes and seaweed scattered all over the garden. So that's kind of interesting. I've heard of it actually raining fish before whenever they get caught in a weather pattern, and you know, people have found fish in their yard. This last story also comes from USA Today, and this is uh, dated August 8th, which at the time of re recording this was just yesterday. This is crazy. Um, a D.C. man orders TV from Amazon.com, and he gets an assault rifle instead. Um, now, it's not clear exactly how this happened, um, but this man named Seth Horvitz, who's a musician out of Washington, so I don't know, maybe you listen to Voices in My Head if you're a musician. Hope you do. But Seth ordered a 39-inch Westinghouse TV through Amazon. UPS delivered a box to his home while he was at work on Tuesday this past week. When he got home, he opened the box, and uh, he found a black semi-automatic SIG 716, which U.S. forces have been carrying for over 50 years. Uh, it's, a, it's a machine gun. It's an assault rifle. And... Um, he noti notified the sender immediately, he called the police, and two police officers responded, and they were a little confused at first because they've never seen anything quite like this, as any of us would be if you order a TV and you get an assault rifle. Um, and Harvard said they, he said, they took my information and then said, we'll handle this weapon because it's illegal to keep here. It's illegal to transport in a car, so it can't be returned. Um, so hopefully Amazon's going to make this right for the man, but crazy apparently there was two different um, addresses on the box and one of them was addressed to this man's house and one of them was addressed to a gun shop that was selling these things but craziness of our world i'm telling you uh that just adds to it i hope this was a little bit more lighthearted than some of the things that we hear in the news today but this has been this just popped into my head it's news to me all right, before we get to question of the week and then the interview, I did want to share uh, this funny story that David Hodge put on Facebook this morning. I don't know where David got it from. I'd like to give credit, so I'm just going to say David Hodge. Um, and if he wants to tell listeners, uh, he can write into the, the Facebook page. But um, a couple is in bed sleeping when there's a rat-a-tat-tat -tat on the door. The husband rolls over and looks at the clock, and it's half past three in the morning. I'm not getting out of bed at this time, he thinks, and he rolls over. Then a louder knock follows. So he drags himself out of bed, goes downstairs, opens the door, and there is a man standing there. It didn't take the homeowner long to realize the man was completely drunk. 
Hi there, slurs the stranger. Can you give me a push? No, get lost. It's half past three and I was in bed, says the man as he slams the door. He goes back up to the bed and tells his wife what happened and she says, That wasn't very nice of you. Remember that night we broke down in the pouring rain on the way to pick up the kids from the babysitter and you had to knock on that man's house to get us started again? What would happen if he'd told us to get lost? But the guy was drunk, says the husband. It doesn't matter, says the wife. He needs our help and it would be the Christian thing to help him. So the husband gets out of bed again, gets dressed and goes downstairs. He opens the door and not being able to see the stranger anywhere, he shouts, Hey! Do you still want to push? And he hears a voice cry out, Yeah, please. So still being unable to see the stranger, he shouts, Where are you? The drunk replies, Over here on the swing. I thought it was pretty funny. Thanks, David Hodge, for sharing that story with us this morning. Without any further hesitation, we're going to go on to the listener favorite question of the week. Question of the week. Question of the week can be answered every week on the Voices in My Head, the Rickley James podcast Facebook page. If you don't know where that is, like I said, go to rickleyjames.com. There's a link. It'll take you there. The question of the week for this week. Where did I? Oh, sorry. I lost my piece of paper that I had it written on. Question of the week for this week was, who is your favorite science fiction character? You can type your answer, by the way, to these uh, questions, or you can call them in at 937-505-0162. I usually do give a prize to callers who call in their answers. We don't have an audio this week to play, but if you do call in, you can leave an audio message and answer this. So the question of the week was, who is your favorite science fiction character? Um, it didn't have to be um, a movie or a TV show. It can be just anything in the work of science fiction. I figured that was appropriate since we have Ben DeBono on the podcast today from the Sci-Fi Christian Podcast. And the answers I have are uh, Brandon Hancock, who's a past guest on the show, great friend, uh, and awesome teacher, worship leader, musician. He actually wrote in and said, Billy Pilgrim, if Slaughterhouse-Five can count as sci-fi. I wish I could tell you, Brandon, but I've never read Slaughterhouse-Five, so I'm just going to take your word for it, literature major that you were. Um, Tony James writes, Wow, this is a tough question because there's so many great characters. It might be a three-way tie. Kaylee from Firefly, Max Evans from Roswell, and Data from Star Trek, The Next Generation. If you mean from a movie, well, that would be Wicket, the Ewok. Um, so that three-way tie turned into four, and uh, it wasn't about a movie. It could be anything, so thanks, Tony, for writing that in. Um, I disagree wholeheartedly with all of those, but um, I hope, I'm hope i glad that you enjoy, especially the one Wicked the Ewok being your favorite sci-fi character. But hey, folks, she's my sister, so I can make fun of her a little bit. I think that's in the Bible. All right, Matthew Cole, who has never missed a question still, um, he says... Now, this is under the understanding that science fiction and fantasy are not the same genre. So I would go with Barf from Spaceballs. <laughs> he is just awesome. But in the end, I would say that Han Solo is my favorite, a bit of a rogue who, in the end, wants to do the redemptive thing for others. Q from Star Trek is definitely worth mentioning, but Han Solo would be the top of my list. 
Well, thank you for writing in this week. We are answers for the question of the week. And next week's question is going to be uh, actually customized because next week's guest is Like a Child, a great band that has a great new album out. I was at a live show of theirs last week and got to interview them afterwards. And they're heavily influenced by Bruce Springsteen, as am I. And so the question for next week, this may exclude some of you. Maybe you're not Springsteen fans. I hope you are. But the question of the week for next week is, what is your favorite Bruce Springsteen album? And that has been Question of the Week. Question of the Week. Well, we're going to go into our interview now. I'm telling you, I'm so excited to have Ben DeBono as my guest this week. Had some great things to say. Uh, I have said this before, and I'm going to say it again. This podcast, if it's any good at all, is only because I surround myself by people smarter than me. um, And I, I learn from them, and Ben is one of those guys that I learn from. I don't know why he doesn't like Superman. We talked about that a little bit off the air, and it's kind of a joke if you listen to the Sci-Fi Christian podcast. And uh, I wanted to ask him about if he was going to like, you know, maybe go see the new Superman movie that's coming out next year because Christopher Nolan, like, you know, helped write it and produced it and everything. And this is as much a conversation about the work of Christopher Nolan as it is Batman, because truly I don't think The Dark Knight Rises was really a Batman film. I think it's a great film. Uh, it has a lot to say about choices and consequences, but to say it was a Batman film um, really minimizes the scope of what this film was. I really feel like that. I know it's weird saying that coming from a superhero movie. Um, so I asked my, my friend, um, who is a pastor at the Epic Life Church in Anoka, Minnesota, and the host and creator, co-creator of the Sci-Fi Christian podcast, if he could come on the show and talk with me about, um, you know, Charles Dickens, because um, this movie is heavily influenced by Dickens, and I I also want to give another shout out to Brett McCracken, who was a past guest on the show, who wrote a great book called Hipster Christianity. Um, This is sort of inspired by some things he wrote on his blog, so uh, look up Brett McCracken as well online because he has some great things to say on this subject that's deeper than what we get into, but I do uh, read a little bit uh, from what Brett has written. Um, If you've not had a chance yet to check out the Sci-Fi Christian podcast, uh, start from episode one. Go to iTunes and start downloading it. The conversations that Ben and Matt have are great. Um, ben hasn't really been on the show much since this uh, this past January, I think, just because of other responsibilities that have happened. Um, so it's been under a little bit of restructuring. But he's told me off the air that hopefully he's going to be able to get back on there soon. So I'm very excited about that. But there are tons of great episodes that you need to go to and listen to with Ben and Matt. Uh, Matt Anderson, Ben DeBono, great hosts. I'm hoping to have Matt on the show in the near future as well so we can talk about some nerdy type things under the uh, the rubric of Christianity. So I'm going to stop talking now and let you hear the great insights of Ben DeBono in this interview that I recorded with him as we discuss The Dark Knight Rises, a great Christopher Nolan movie. Well, my guest today on Voices in My Head is Ben DeBono. Ben DeBono is the executive pastor at Epic Life Church in Anoka, Minnesota. He has his master's in theology from Northwest College, 
And he's also the co-creator of the Sci-Fi Christian Podcast, which is a podcast that I have recommended numerous times on this show. They do a great job of not only talking about science fiction and all things about science fiction, but they do a great job of couching that in a theological discussion. And it's always funny. It's it's always very enlightening at the same time. And so I guess this is as close maybe of a chance as I'll ever have to being on the Sci-Fi Christian Podcast is getting to welcome Ben DeBono to Voices in My head today. Ben, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, Rick. It's great to be on your show and uh, great to talk some sci-fi and theology with you, two of my favorite topics. Definitely. And and I have to say, this is I, I found your podcast, I think, in uh, January of this year, earlier, or maybe it was late December, and I just burned through like a year's worth of episodes in about two months. I just I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't stop listening to it. Like I would whenever I uh, had a free moment, I had my headphones on, or if I was driving somewhere, I was listening to it. And it seemed like I was taking a lot of trips, whether it was for doing concerts or whatever. It just gave me a lot of chance to listen to your podcast, and it quickly became my favorite. And uh, I've mentioned it on the show many times, but I just wanted to say, you know, thanks for producing that because it really is an interesting show. I really do love it. Oh, you're very welcome. And what a great compliment. Uh, I don't know if I could stand listening to myself that often, but uh, <laughs> I'm glad somebody out there uh, got that much out of it. And, you know, you you know how it is with these podcasts. You, you do a lot of work and, and there's lots of prep and production and everything. And uh, we put them out there for free. But when you hear somebody who is enjoying it that much, that, that makes the whole thing worth it. So thank you. That, that's very high praise. Oh, and, and, you know, it's always great, too, because you and Matt, whenever you're able to be there together, and, and uh, listeners, if if you go to the to podcast, you'll have to listen to some older ones to hear Ben more. Uh, he's pulled away a little bit for now with, with hopes of getting back on to the show more um, in the fall. His schedule just got really busy. But when he and, and Matt are on there together, it's it's almost like you guys have a uh, – I don't want to say a comedy routine, but Matt seems um, as as good-natured as anybody I've ever seen. But he seems like – he seems like the disorganized one to your organization, and it's almost like it's almost like you're the straight man to his, you know, comedy at times whenever he goes on there. And you know, we we just have a great chemistry together, and yeah. it's one of those things where uh, we never actually sat down and planned it, but you know, over over the first few shows as we got rolling together, we just kind of fell into those roles, and sure. Yeah, it really developed into kind of a nice back and forth as we played off of each other, walked together, agreed, you know, all, all the great stuff that was part of the show. And and he just could never uh, Matt Anderson we're talking about. He's a friend of the show, and I, I appreciate Matt as well. But uh, he never could get through an episode without mentioning Lost at least once. <laughs> that is true. I, <laughs> I, I I don't know if there's an official uh, classification in the DSM four for Lost <laughs> mental illness, but if there is, I'm pretty sure Matt has it. <laughs> That's funny. Well, again, I want to recommend that podcast to listeners. If you if you love sci-fi and you love Jesus, those it's a great combination to go over and listen to the Sci-Fi Christian. And even if you don't love one or the other that I just mentioned, I still think you'll like the podcast. So uh, enjoy that. Now, we're going to start with question of the week. And every week I, I ask my guests the question of the week. And it can also be answered uh, the week that the podcast is released, uh, or actually the week prior to the podcast being released on the Voices in My Head, the Rick Lee James podcast Facebook page. And so since you um, 
have done so much with science fiction, I figured today would be a good day to ask a sci-fi question. So the question of the week for you this week, Ben, is who is your favorite science fiction character? You know, some questions are tough in the sense that it's hard to come up with a good answer. Uh, this one's tough in the sense that it, it's hard to narrow down the answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was thinking about it a little bit, and I was tempted to say Batman, because, you know, we're talking about Batman today, and I, I'm coming off the high of Christopher Nolan's movies, but that, that one's just a little bit uh, too obvious of a choice, I think. So I'm going to reach back a little bit, and I am going to go uh, with the character of Sam, from Robert Roger Zelazny's novel, Lord of Light, hmm. one of my favorite science fiction novels, um, kind of a post-apocalyptic, futuristic, post-human setting where humans have evolved and uh, through technological advances have set themselves up as the Hindu pantheon on this distant colony. Uh, and Sam is the one member of this pantheon who rebels against the others, and there's war that breaks out. It's a great combination of science fiction and mythology and uh, characters and uh, kind of post-apocalyptic setting. And I've read that book several times, just listened to it um, on a road trip earlier this year, uh, and absolutely love it every time. So Mahasa Matman, or Sam, as he's commonly known in the book, uh, my favorite science fiction character. Very cool. I'll have to check that book out. I've I've uh, read a few books based off of some of your recommendations, not only on the Sci-Fi Christian but on Goodreads, and um and and we should mention that too because you guys have mentioned that a few times. Uh, is it Goodreads.com? I think. Uh, yep, Goodreads.com. It's sort of this. Uh, it's it's almost like a book Facebook community, like where people go and and make recommendations, and you can tell what you're reading at the time. Uh, I recommend you check out uh, Ben's page over there because uh, he does have some very good recommendations of things to read. So Lord of Light and Sam is your favorite character. So, well, it's it's interesting to to have a sci-fi fan uh, like myself actually to talk about some things about Batman. We specifically, uh, I've invited Ben on today because the the Dark Knight Rises came out. And there's just so much that you can mine from not only that film, but so many things by Christopher Nolan. And I almost wouldn't call them sci-fi because even though Batman has taken on many many different iterations through the years where, I mean, we've seen Batman in space in the comic books. We've seen Batman who's like the policeman's friend, you know, of the 60s that was, um, you know, a very down-to-earth but just corny and then we've seen like the really dark portrayals through the movies uh even through tim burton and then uh as it turned into the schumacher films which just became absolutely ridiculous again um we've seen so many iterations of him where it's been realistic and sci-fi and i think nolan has really uh, almost created a new genre of the superhero film in that there's so much seemingly realism to them like they really don't even feel like a sci-fi or uh, fantastical type journey at times because there's so much um, reality, I guess, to that. Um, but as as this new movie came out, there's a lot to talk about not only in the movie, but there's as much drama surrounding the film as we know um, the shootings that have happened in Colorado uh, with James Holmes and, and the victims there. 
and even um, copycats of that killing that the different uh, police agencies around the U.S. have actually caught people trying to recreate that, and, and thankfully no more shootings have, have happened yet that I'm aware of. But there's been so much drama with this, and there's so much to talk about in the film, and then also as a way to think about um, you know, the character of Batman as a person who actually is not content to leave things the way they are, but wants to change thing, things. And we're in a time in our culture right now, even surrounding this film, where I think we're seeing, um, I guess as we would put it in a biblical metaphor, creation groaning. Um, and we're seeing that there needs to be change and that Christians need to be agents of that change in the world in artistic ways. So I'm excited to get to talk uh, in that very long intro with you about some things that maybe Christopher Nolan has modeled, maybe even for the church, that we could learn from in times like these. So, uh, yeah. so I, I'm going to babble. So uh, here, as you said, uh, it really is tough to narrow it down to a few topics, but mm-hmm. yeah, this thing you got to love about Christopher Nolan is just the way that he he makes movies that are about something, mm-hmm. and, and that's what's drawn me to all of his films, whether it's Batman, Inception, whatever. Is that they're not just cool movies, or they are that, but they're actually about something. Yeah, and and that's what I think makes interesting when we talk about sci-fi, like books that you've recommended. Not just that it's some spacey story or or some fantasy element, but there's actually something about uh, real life and depth to it that you know I think any good sci-fi story, like any story, actually is going to be lasting because of that. So, well, let me start with a, a very quick intro about the movie, and I'm getting this info uh, from Warner Brothers itself, just describing the movie. Now, if you haven't seen The Dark Knight Rises, um, you may want to maybe turn off the podcast until you do and come back, because I think we're probably going to get into some spoiler-type territory today as we talk about the film. I don't know if we'll be able to avoid that. Um but if you have seen it, um, here's here's just a, a quick plot from Warner Brothers. It has been eight years since Batman vanished into the night, turning in that instant from hero to fugitive. Assuming the blame for the death of D.A. Harvey Dent, the Dark Knight sacrificed everything for what he and Commissioner Gordon both hoped was the greater good. For a time, the lie worked, as criminal activity in Gotham City was crushed under the weight of the Anti-Crime Dent Act. But everything will change with the arrival of a cunning cat burglar with a mysterious agenda. Far more dangerous, however, is the emergence of Bane, a masked terrorist whose ruthless plans for Gotham drive Bruce out of his self-imposed exile. But even if he dons the cape and the cowl again, Batman may be no match for Bane. And that is uh, quickly from Warner Brothers. So Ben and I have been emailing each other back and forth, just wondering exactly how... Um, how to start this discussion, and we both had some different thoughts on the matter, and so I think what we'll do, Ben, is I'm just going to um, start out with maybe some thoughts that you've brought to the table, and then we'll we'll go into some of mine and just see where our conversation takes us today. And Sounds great. You said in your email today, you said that you love the way this movie made you look at the end of The Dark Knight, the movie pre- previous to this, uh, made you look at it differently, because The Dark Knight ends with heroes telling a lie for the sake of the greater good. And this film holds them accountable for that lie eight years later. Um, t- talk to us a little bit about that, because I actually had not thought about that until you mentioned that in the email to me, but you make a very good point about... Um, 
are, are being called to account, you know, for the the choices that we make, and and just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's kind of been interesting as I've read a lot of the reactions and analysis of the film that people have made a lot over how this movie connects very overtly to stuff in Batman Begins, uh, and less overtly to The Dark Knight. And that's certainly true. There's a lot of you know great elements like the League of Shadows and uh, Ra's al Ghul, and even small elements like the Family Pearls that connect back to the first movie. But the more I thought about the movie, in a very subtle way, I think the shadow of the Dark Knight looms over Dark Knight Rises even more than Batman Begins does. You know, they make this choice at the end of the Dark Knight to tell a lie. Um, They feel like they're back into an impossible situation where we tell the truth, the Joker wins, he brings down Harvey Dent, and he has his victory. And so they decide to pin everything Harvey Dent did onto Batman and uh, hold Harvey Dent up as a hero. And Dark Knight Rises is really about the collapse of that lie. Um, The scene where Bane stands on top of a tumbler outside of Blackgate Prison and holds up the picture of Harvey Dent and exposes that lie for everyone uh, is such a huge turning point in the collapse of the civilization of Gotham City. And it's it's such a great moment because how many filmmakers, how many artists are willing to hold their heroes accountable for a choice like that, Hmm. especially a choice made under those impossible circumstances. And in some ways, it's tough to argue with what they do at the end of The Dark Knight. It does, and you can make a really strong argument that it's the best of a lot of bad options. Yeah. Like Christopher Nolan comes back and he holds them accountable for that choice. Hmm. Uh, And in a sense, you could almost look at everything bad that happens in Dark Knight Rises as the Joker's victory hmm. eight years later. Uh, and it's just such a, a great connection between the two. And and one of those things that I don't think you catch really on the first viewing, but as I watched the movie a second time and really started to think about it, there's a lot there that, that really ties to the ending of Dark Knight. Yeah, and I, I haven't had a chance to view it for the second time yet. I've, I've really been wanting to. But there's been so many things that have just made me think as as I replay things in my mind. And the more I think about it, like this doesn't, this doesn't even feel like a Batman movie to me. <laughs> it, it feels like um, just almost a, I don't know if we want to call it a parable about choices that are made for good, for bad, um, for whatever. But I mean, it's almost like Batman is just a way to get us in the theater. But the story is so much bigger than Batman. I mean, he obviously hasn't even been Batman for eight years. It takes quite a divergence from the comic story. And um, I guess they did a uh, a panel. I, it might have been this past year, but I think at one of the San Diego Comic-Cons about how long in real life, and since Nolan is so into realism, how long a person could do what Batman does and, and live, you know. And they, they say, I think it's about three years that an actual human could live up to the kind of um, the kind of beating that Batman takes, you know, again and again. So it's it's maybe not mu- much of a stretch to think that, okay, here's a guy that almost had to go into retirement because, right. you know, the cartilage in his bone is worn away. Um, matter of fact, he doesn't, he doesn't have any at all, the doctor tells him at one point. And um, you get this picture not of this unstoppable superhero but of, of a real human that has been trying to make some good – 
some good choices for the greater good, but has really taken its toll even on his body and his mind and his spirit. Um, and he's he's dealing with the grief of a death. And I loved how you said it's it's like the Joker's victories come through, but but we didn't even hear the name Joker mentioned the entire film. And uh, I think it would have been interesting. And I know Heath Ledger is, is dead, but it would have been interesting if somewhere along the way we would have had a nod to what the Joker's doing in the midst of all this, you know, seeing the chaos that he brought about, <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, through all that. But, yeah, that would have been would have been interesting. I, I think it's probably because of Heath Ledger's death that Christopher Nolan made the choice to just not mention it at all. Sure. Though apparently in the novelization. Um, there's a reference, which I haven't read, but but they, I read a couple of news stories about this. There's a reference when Catwoman gets thrown into Blackgate Prison, uh, as she's thinking about is the Joker here, and she's reflecting on a rumor that he was the last inmate in Arkham, or maybe he's dead, or or something like that. So there is a reference that he's possibly locked away in Arkham Asylum somewhere, hmm. uh, instead of which would explain why he is let loose. Um, yeah. The Blackgate prisoners are freed. Now, did you say that was in a novel? Or? Yep, that's in the novelization oh. of uh, Dark Knight Rises. I may have to read that. The, the, a lot of times the novelizations for those are really good, too. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, now you you also pointed out in, in our discussion um, as to tie on to some of these choices that people make, and um, you've already brought out how almost like some of the actions Joker took leads into this movie and the anarchy that ends up to ensue. But building on that, um, you said everybody seems to be trapped in some sort of either a literal or a metaphorical prison. And uh, maybe I'll just name some of the characters and and maybe we can just share some thoughts about maybe some of the traps they're in. Because I feel like, um, you know, a lot of people will say, you know, lying is wrong no matter what. But if you're faced with this impossible choice, what do you do? Do you tell the lie? Do you tell the truth? And it's amazing how even even deception for the betterment of someone else, I think this movie is just examining there are consequences, you know, even if it's supposedly a good deception. So let's look at um, maybe some of the way that, that Gordon seems to be trapped in this movie, who is, is once again played very, very well by Gary Oldman. Um, but to me, he just seems like, he, he he's always holding back. You know, he has that letter with him that wants to tell the whole story, but he really can't, and he's he's waiting for an opportune time. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, Gordon being trapped in his lie and some of the, the things you perceive about that. Yeah, I think that, that first scene uh, with him where he's at the uh, eight-year anniversary of Harvey Dent, or Harvey Dent Day, I guess is what they called in the movie, uh, and you can just sense the guilt and the shame coming off of him as he's preparing to go up there and speak. Uh, and to me, that was one of the, the great ways that a good performance can add so much to a movie, mm. where Christopher Nolan can communicate through exposition that uh, maybe the Harvey Dent Act is controversial, maybe some bad things came from this lie, maybe it wasn't as straightforward as we thought. But the way Gary Oldman played that scene, and you can just feel his agony as he's holding the secret in uh, for eight years, and, and not only from the lie, but having from having to promote a man who almost killed his family, 
was just a, a great intro, reintroduction to the character uh, as Gordon's trapped in that moment and, and begin, just like he was eight years ago, faced with an impossible situation that he doesn't know how to handle. And uh, Oh, I was just going to say, and, and he's even, in this movie, lost his family. They've moved, I think they say, to Cleveland and uh, have, you know, he's separated from his wife and, you know, maybe as a result of this ordeal. So here he is trying to protect his family by lifting up the person that tried to to kill them so brutally and then even loses his family in the midst of trying to save it. Right, right, yeah. And then obviously, literally, he's trapped by his ill or his uh, beating that he takes at the hands of Bane later in the movie. Sure. Um, so it, it kind of, I think that that in some ways starts to represent his more metaphorical entrapment, but... Um, yeah, he certainly struggles throughout the movie as being trapped in different ways. Sure. And um, and I, I think about this and, and just lies in general, but, you know, there's always this um, this thought that people have, and I, I think um, maybe counselors deal with this a lot whenever um, they're dealing with infidelity, maybe within marriages, and this might be a little bit of a stretch, but I know that the argument is often, well, is it over now? Is there a need to tell this other person what happened because it's just going to bring them pain, you know, is it is it better if I keep something like this in and you know and that that's that's a, a much larger thing but this whole idea that he's just struggling with is it's almost like he needs a release somehow. He needs to confess this this lie that he's put out but he thinks it's going to cause so much harm if he does. And uh, I think that we deal with that a lot as human beings. Absolutely. And and that's uh, again, what's so true about the way Christopher Nolan makes his films is that, yeah, these are characters, yeah, we're watching a story, but uh, but the things they're going through are things that we connect with on a very visceral uh, and deep level as humans. Well, and then we then we have Bruce Wayne, who of course is Batman, and uh, but he's not at this point. I, one one thing that's very interesting is in the comics, it's like. Um, Bruce Wayne is the secret identity of Batman because Batman has just taken over his personality so much. And it seems like in this film, Nolan is almost taking a different approach in that Bruce Wayne is actually, you know, he's done. He's he's through being Batman. And I don't know if this was his way of uh, taking a note from maybe Frank Miller's, you know, The Dark Knight Returns or something where there's this time period where Batman is, has left. But um, it's very interesting that now... I think Christian Bale maybe is doing his best acting of the three films, I feel like, anyway. Um, and and he s seems to be trapped um, not only by this lie they've told, but it, it, it's interesting because I want to tie him to Alfred because in some ways he's trapped by um, by another lie, you know, <laughs> by his own yeah. ignorance because Alfred um, has not told Bruce about the letter that Rachel gave him, which leads him to stop being Batman, really. <laughs> yeah. Um, which, because Rachel, if I recall in the, in the previous movie, is basically led Bruce to think that, well, if, if there's a time that you could stop being Batman, we could actually be together. And whenever Rachel passes away, Alfred has a letter that he's supposed to give to Bruce from Rachel, which is basically saying, she decided she wants to be with with Harvey and not him. And so um so Bruce has now decided, you know, in honor of Rachel which he's no longer going to be Batman uh, thinking that that was her wish. And so it's Alfred's lie that has trapped Bruce in another lie. <laughs> so, yeah. Um 
didn't know if you had any thoughts about that or Bruce or anything. Yeah, yeah, I think that uh, it's good to associate Alfred and Bruce here. Uh, in the sense, because you're right, Alfred's lie from the previous movie, or, or maybe omission, uh, really does trap Bruce in a, in a strong way, where he's not able to continue as Batman, but yet he's also not able to leave it behind. Uh, I think Alfred makes another good point in relation to how Bruce is trapped, where he talks about how, you know, I never wanted you to come back. When you were gone in the first movie for those seven years, I, I never hoped that you would return. Mm. And Alfred seems to have a real sense that even Gotham itself has trapped Bruce, and that there's something about Bruce where the longer he stays in Gotham, uh, it's going to be impossible for him to ever live the life that Alfred would have him live. Uh, and so Alfred eventually makes a choice to stop enabling that entrapment and to leave him. And, you know, talk about a powerful and emotional scene in the film mm. uh, and doing unexpected things that we've never seen done with these characters before. That, that to me, was one of the, the great scenes in this movie when Alfred decides to leave Bruce and stops enabling his entrapment, mm. uh, both the persona of Batman and even just in living in Gotham City. And, you know, I think that Michael Caine um, actually kind of gets the short stick in this movie because you don't see him again until the end. But when he's in it, it seems like he does such a great job. I mean, <laughs> that that scene at the end where he's just weeping. I mean, I've, I'm finding myself getting a little teary watching his emotion that he's bringing out to that part. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Christopher Nolan has somehow managed to get so many great all-star actors into really small parts in these movies. Uh, and it's just a testament to his ability as a director and as a, a recruiter and caster. And, you know, the fact that he's got Morgan Freeman and Lucius Fox, and you, you mentioned Gary Oldman uh, as Commissioner Gordon, which is still a little bit it's a bigger part, but not the headlining role that Gary Oldman sure. certainly is capable of. Yeah. Uh, and there's so many great actors in, in mm. these bit parts and, and that's part of what has made this trilogy so memorable. And um, and another new actor that they added, who who I am liking more all the time in films that I see him in, and I, I know he was the kid on uh, Third Rock from the Sun years ago, uh, but he's become quite a great like indie film actor, and we're starting to see him more in bigger films as Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And uh, well, I'd like to like tear apart every character if we could. I, just for sake of time, I think we'll we'll maybe just do one more. Um, and I, I probably should see the movie a second time before I make too much assertion about uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, who um, I've, his name left me in the film. Um, John Blake. John Blake. That's correct. Yeah. Um, who, who his real name we find out at the end is Robin, which is very interesting, <laughs> yes. which I thought that was kind of a neat twist on that too. But it seems like John Blake's character, who is this orphan, you know, in, in some ways very similar to Bruce, and for some reason he's been able to figure out that Bruce is Batman. I think it's interesting that he is affected by everyone's lie um, in the way that he lives his life, and it's led him to live his life a certain way. And there's a part where... Um, Batman says something to him about you need to wear a mask and he says something about um, I, I can't remember the exact quote but it's something to the extent of I'm not scared to let them see me you know I want I want them to know who's coming up against them you know type thing and Batman says well it's to protect those around you but as I thought more about his character he seems like one of the few unblemished characters in this as far as he seems to be following his own 
conscience and he's he's not trying to cover anything up and yet he is so affected by everybody else's um you know choices to hide themselves throughout all of it and um it, it's very interesting that he is one of the few people that that never gives up hope ever in this movie and he's always even at the end when um when the boys are on the school bus the orphans and I mean, he knows they're gonna die in this terrible nuclear explosion. <laughs> he still doesn't give up hope. He's like, "Come on, let's get back on the bus. Let's get you to safety," you know. And he he doesn't want them to stop having hope. So, if there's any deception he brings about, uh, he brings it about for the hope of others as well. Like he's trying to protect these boys and and doesn't want to leave them without hope. You know, I just really I thought that was a powerful character, and he he didn't have a huge role in the movie. But to me, he was probably my favorite character in the film. Oh, he was fantastic. And, and uh, listeners of the Sci-Fi Christian will know that I am a bona fide Robin hater. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think he's a, usually a terrible character in, in the comics and uh, certainly in the Schumacher films. But, man, um, if there's a way to bring Robin to the extent that John Blake is Robin uh, to the screen in a way that uh, is true to the Batman mythology... Uh, and is engaging and just fantastic. This was it. I, I love the character. Hmm. Um, I was thinking as you were talking, you're, you're right. He is kind of the one character who isn't uh, trapped uh, in, in a lie or even by his own actions. I mean, he's obviously trapped in Gotham when Bane takes over, but beyond that, <clears throat> not in the way the others are. And, and that made me think as you were talking, and forgive me, this thought isn't very well uh, um developed it was just coming to me in the last couple minutes uh but thinking about the ending of the movie where he prepares to take on uh the batman mantle uh and take over the role of the dark knight is he in a sense is that in a sense maybe a tragic ending where he's the one character who's remained unblemished who's been able to avoid these traps and then at the end of the movie as he heads into the Batcave, we almost see him succumbing to uh the deception, succumbing to the masks that have haunted Bruce Wayne. Um, I think the movie presents it very triumphantly in a lot of ways, but I wonder if you could also take it as a tragic ending for his character. Yeah, and I hadn't thought about that until just you know recently, but I was thinking in a little bit in that same direction because it is that point. We don't see him put on a mask or anything, but it seems like he is heading down that road to now he's going to be covering up who he is too, you know, for the sake of others and um and i hadn't really thought a lot about it until this film but just even how uh, how the mask itself can be this metaphor of of maybe seemingly good deception i guess you know <laughs> um but but the mask can really be a metaphor for for things that we hide about ourselves and as a christian you know i i think i have to i have to confront things like that and say you know it makes a really great story um but we're actually called if there's one thing that we don't need more of in the church it's more masks you know we right. we have a way of as believers especially when when we come to a congregational setting um if there's one thing we know how to do it's pose you know when we're when we're with other people and we can present ourselves sometimes as some cape crusader of christianity you know coming in being all strong and then 
the reality of it though is we still are broken people in need of a savior and and our our strength only comes from God. So just as I think about that as a metaphor, you know, I may have to rethink some of my love for comic books, who knows, but um it's just <laughs> But it's a, well, it is a, that's what Christopher Nolan does too. He ruins the entire genre for, that's right, for the rest that's of your right. life. <laughs> I'm gonna sell all sell all my comic books. I'm tired of this. No, but yeah. I, I do appreciate that about him and whether it was intentional or not, and I, I do tend to think it was. I do think it's an interesting way for us to look at um our our justifications for actions that we take. And um and they do when there are choices, sometimes good, sometimes bad, but our choices do affect the paths in life that we take. And uh, when I think of John Blake and, and many others, um, we, we often think that our own our choices just affect us, but our choices in life affect a myriad of people. I mean, they're um, – and, and I think about like if, if we were, for instance, to decide we don't want to follow the path – that God has laid out for our life, and and we fight against that, and we go against it. I think of all the the effect that that may have on people that we were actually called to be a part of their life, to enrich it, to call them to something more. But because maybe we've chosen to live in isolation, um, our choice has maybe affected their well being in some way. And and that's again not to limit God and what what God's actually doing in His story using us, but. Um, you know, when you think about that, our, this movie has so much to say about choices, good or bad, and what they can actually do to other people. And I love how in our society that we strive so hard to make everything just about us and our own little world, that there really is not only a, a need for community, but there's absolutely no way to avoid community in some way or another, whether it affects you for good or for bad. Um, yeah, that's very, very true, and I'm even thinking as we're talking about masks, about uh, you could even take the trilogy and its its thoughts on, on this topic as uh, that masks are in some ways the quest for false meaning in our lives. I'm thinking of Bane's line at the very first scene of this movie where he says, nobody cared who I was until I put on the mask, hmm. uh, and how we think we're going to accomplish so much by hiding ourselves, and we think we can be somebody who we're not. Um, but ultimately it corrupts us and, and drags us down when we go down that road. And while we while we mention this about Bane, and then we'll move on to a different topic, uh, yeah. I've heard a lot of people giving the character of Bane grief. And to be honest, I, I read Batman when I was younger, and I read where Bane broke Batman's back in the comic, and there was this sense for me in the movie where I felt like I was watching it like come to life, and I, I geeked out a little bit in the theater. I know my wife was like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, they did it. I can't believe they just broke his back. But, uh, but there is this sense, too, in which um, like a lot of people have been complaining, maybe because they just, you know, we had Heath Ledger in that last movie who did such a good job. But I really think Bane, who I didn't really care a lot about as a character, um, I thought that um, Tom Hardy, you know, the the way that he brought out this, like, almost English gentleman, you know, type thing, there's almost this refinedness yeah. about the character, but he was super scary you know, in the middle of yeah. There's something to me terrifying about somebody that has almost this facade of being a gentleman and being kind and a, and a kindred spirit that in the next moment is going to slit your throat is just terrifying, you know, and um, I yeah. felt I felt like Nolan made me care about that character for maybe the first time, you know. And of course, 
Yeah, I think you're right. Heath Ledger just set the bar so high that that's what people are responding to more than uh, Tom Hardy's performance. And it's really unfair to him because was that the level of Heath Ledger's Joker? No, but neither is pretty much any other villain performance in the history of cinema. (laughs) You know, and you take Heath Ledger out of it and don't make that comparison, and it's an incredible villain and a great performance. Yeah. And I was just so glad they didn't give him the Nacho Libre mask, you know, oh. <laughs> like, like they do in the yep. comic books. Because yep. really, that's one of the reasons I just have always thought, and especially, you know, the Schumacher movie ruined Bane for me, where he's just like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and when I and, when yeah. I heard when I heard Nolan was going to put him in this movie, I was just like, really, we're going to do Bane <laughs> for Joker? But uh, great, great work, though. I feel like. Well, let's move on. There's so much more I'd like to talk about, but I I think we're going to run out of time if we don't. Let's talk a little bit because I I think your original major in college, weren't you a literature major, if I'm not mistaken? I was. I got my uh, undergrad in English from the University of Minnesota. Okay. So the fact that – actually, one of the things that that brought about this podcast today – um, someone who's been a guest on this show in the past, a, a great author. His name's Brett McCracken. Uh, he's written books like Hipster Christianity. He writes for uh, Relevant Magazine on a fairly regular basis. And uh, he also has a, a blog called The Search where he writes about various things, one being movies. But um, I actually posted one of his articles online, which you commented on, and, and uh, it kind of brought about our doing this today. Uh, but his article is called Batman, Dickens, and Resurrection, and uh, made me think of the movie in a much deeper way than I did. I knew there was something about the film that um, caused me to do a lot of thinking, but uh, if you don't mind, I, I want to read a few paragraphs from from his article, and then maybe we can talk about some of the things. I'm sure you have probably read more Dickens than I have. Um, I've I've read The Christmas Carol, and I've read a couple other things by him, but I don't think I've ever read A Tale of Two Cities, other than I've I know the story. But um, this is this is some of the stuff that Brett says, and I'll try not to read too much. But um, read our listeners, if you're looking to read his full article on Batman, Dickens, and the Resurrection, uh, just look up the search. I think it's thesearch.com, or it may be uh, if you just do a Google search for Brett McCracken, you're going to be able to find this. But he says, uh, perhaps the most important theme from the tale, and he's talking about this movie, um, from the tale that informs Rises is a concept of rebirth or resurrection. We see this even in the film's title, The Dark Knight Rises. Everything in the film speaks to the belief or desire for rebirth. Just as the French revolutionaries sought to totally destroy the old regime and build a new society, so too do the villains in Rises seek the destruction of Gotham and the birth of a new order. Catwoman seeks a reboot of her own life where her past is erased and her future is a chance to make something better and less criminal of herself. The very idea of cats and Catwoman, nine lives, implies second and third and fourth chances. Joseph Gordon-Levitt's John Blake also experiences something of a rebirth in his identity and purpose, though I will say absolutely no more about that. And then there's Batman himself, whose arc in the film is a series of deaths and rebirths, from his start as an out-of-commission recluse to his flashy return as Batman, to his broken back defeat by Bane and subsequent imprisonment in the prison pit, to rise out of the darkness and defeat of evil, to his act of sacrifice and, um, and, well, that last scene. 
And then skipping down towards the end of the article, I just want to read a little bit from the end. Uh, he says, The impulse towards resurrection is a grand motif of human existence. It's the arc of all creation and everyone within it, groaning and aching for the dawn of better days, when all is put right and evil is subdued. The hope of resurrection is the thing Sidney Carton takes refuge in before his own death in A Tale of Two Cities as he rests in the truth of John 11, 25, and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. That's the hope we all have. He rose, and in him we can all rise. The dark night rises, stirs us so, because it taps into that hope, as does Dickens, more directly perhaps, in A Tale of Two Cities. It's a hope our world needs. So, uh, talk to us a little bit, because again, I, I know you know a lot more about Dickens. Um, I, I know a lot more maybe about just his life, um, and the way that, you know, at a young age, because of his father's debts, he had to go to work in factories at like the age of 10, and then at the age of 15, um, his family got a share of an estate, and he was able to go back to some sort of a semblance of life and go back to school, but then his family hit hardship again, and he had to go back into the factories again, and had a very tragic life, and, and one thing that I love about Dickens is um, when, once he came out of that and really got discovered as an author, it seemed like in, in real life, everything for for him was just a miracle from God. And he just looked at everything through this lens of, you know, like resurrection. But tell us a little bit about, you know, because I think you know more about the Tale of Two Cities and kind of how it correl correlates with this movie. Yeah, Tale of Two Cities is uh, a bit anomalous when it comes to Dickens' work in the sense that it's a historical novel. Um, something we can miss because for us all of Dickens' stuff seems historical, being set so far back. <clears throat> Excuse me, but um, Tale of Two Cities is set against the French Revolution, and the two cities of the title are London and Paris. And so it's really contrasting these two civilizations as London is kind of in its prime and Paris is going through a complete collapse uh, and rebirth through the French Revolution. And I think where Nolan took a lot of the cues from this is examining the downfall of a society and what happens to the people in a society when it just completely collapses and where the revolution becomes disastrous. So you see things like uh, the freeing of the prisoners from Blackgate being very similar to the storming of the Bastille, um, the uh, tribunals of Scarecrow, which is a great moment in the movie, um, being very similar to the tribunals and tale of two cities in the French Revolution. And, and through all of this, I think that what Dickens is trying to portray uh, and what Nolan is trying to portray is a lot of what, what Brett's talking about with this theme of rebirth and resurrection. Um, but I think it even goes darker than that, because I think what both literary works are trying to tell us is that resurrection isn't guaranteed. Uh, when you go through this cycle of rebirth, hmm. that it's something we have to struggle for and fight for, uh, and we can't just go after this collapse without uh, any direction of, of how we're going to go about coming back on the other end and how we're going to go about finding rebirth. And, and that's where the hope of the gospel comes in, that that is our guarantee of rebirth. And so I think that there's a cautionary tale to be, be told both by Dickens and by Nolan that be careful how you go about finding that rebirth, because it might not turn out the way you want it to. Mm. Uh, 
of course, we as Christians, as I said, have the answer. We we have the gospel that tells us how to be reborn, how to be transformed. Um, and transformation is so often, especially in Christian circles, looked at as a positive thing. And even in Nolan's movie, it is to, to an extent. Uh, but I think it's fascinating to also examine kind of the dark side of transformation. What happens when the transformation goes bad? Mm. Yeah. And this might be a good way for us to get into the next part of the conversation I'd like to go into is, um, you know, Dickens, while he was a believer, at that time, there wasn't this, um, I don't know if we call it a subgenre or whatever of Christian literature, you know, or um, or Christian art. You know, there, there wasn't back then, at least I don't think, you know, you wouldn't see a painting on the wall and go, what a great Christian painting, you know, <laughs> or yeah. or what a what a great Christian play we just watched or things like that. Um, and I'd love to talk a little bit. Um, there, there's a book that N.T. Wright wrote, and I know N.T. Wright is uh, one of our favorite authors, both of us. Um, and he has a book called Evil and the Justice of God. And as I was thinking through, um, once again, as a worship leader, as someone who uh, is often in front of you know, the people of God on a regular basis, I found myself having to deal with these shootings, there's so many tragedies and, and things that come along. And I, I thought, how do we deal with these questions? And N.T. Wright does a great job uh, looking in the book. But it led me more into thinking about art and what a crucial role that art plays for believers. And um, he, he says on page 128 of this book, N.T. Wright says, Art at its best not only draws attention to the way things are, but to the way things are meant to be, and by God's grace to the way things one day will be, when the earth is filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea, which that actually comes out of Habakkuk chapter 2. And when Christian artists go to that task, they will be contributing to the integration of heart, mind, and soul, which we seek, to which we are called. And... I was thinking about, I, I don't know that, uh, matter of fact, I'm fairly certain that Nolan doesn't consider himself probably a, a believer, at least in Christianity. Um, and and I, I'm not trying to say that to be judgmental of him if he does have that. Um, I just haven't seen any evidence that, that he's you know put himself in that vein. But I feel like people like Christopher Nolan, um, no matter what he believes, one way or the other, I think he models for us in his movie making and his storytelling of the the already mixed with the not yet of of what could be. And um, I, I wonder if you had any thoughts about that, because I, I really see that in all of his films, he wants to, to be faithful to reality, but it, it almost is always through a lens of what could be. And and it's either a hopeful could be or it's a evil could be, you know. Yeah, you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, it's such a. I was so glad you sent me that N.T. Wright quote when we were emailing back and forth about this topic because it, it rings so true um, to what Christopher Nolan has accomplished, uh, and even in connection to these shootings uh, that tragically happened uh, on the opening of the premiere, where when Christian art, in Christian art, as we touch on these themes of hope and renewal and transformation and the world set to right, um, we have the answer in Christianity to 
the great evil that takes place when a James Bond takes it down in future from movie theater. We have the answer in Christianity, but so often our art is so sanitized and, mm. and so um, pulled back from that that we never actually get around to addressing the problem. Uh, and that, to me, is more than just an oversight on, on behalf of Christian artists. It, it's a very tragic thing. You know, as people are talking about why did this happen in Colorado, and they're, you know, liberal, conservative, uh, moderate, what have you, everybody's pulling out different theater, or theories. Um, and some of those are useful, and some of that, that discussion's useful to have, but at the end of the day, uh, what it all boils down to is that that happened because our world is evil, and the evil is in who we are and all around us in our world. And Christianity has the answer to that problem in Jesus Christ, that things can be set right, that the problem of evil doesn't have to reign supreme, um, that the world can be renewed and creation can be reborn. And Christian artists have a unique job alongside of preachers and pastors and theologians of communicating that message. Uh, and it's tragic when the secular world gets it more right than we do, mm-hmm. you know? And not to take anything away from Christopher Nolan's accomplishment or anything, because it is, as you said, it's spectacular and hitting on that theme. Uh, but if he can do it, why can't we in the church? Why can't we communicate that same truth? Sure. Uh, and that, to me, is deeply tragic, because we should be able to address this as Christians in a way that uh, very few pastors, theologians, or artists are doing effectively. Yeah. And I believe it's uh, I believe it's Walter Brueggemann in his book Finally Comes the Poet, and it's it's been a while since I've read that book, but if memory serves me, uh, towards the beginning of that book, he points out, and if you don't know Walter Brueggemann, listeners, he's a, a brilliant Old Testament scholar, and uh, he says, you know, basically what um, what Hebrews um, called prophets, Greeks would call poets, and uh, this, this interesting idea that artists and and I want to put preachers in the category of artists in this because I do believe that preaching is a, an art of transformation um but no matter what kind of an artist you are if you're a christian I, I think you are actually called to be um you know one if you're one who proclaims you're called to be a poet you know you're called to be this prophetic poet so to speak so whether you're a preacher whether you're an artist whether you're a musician like me whether you're um just whatever you do in the creative field um there is this high task of actually creating something that um can help to to bring explanation about things and i i want to say something that may be a little bit controversial here but i i believe it to be true and it may be especially controversial because i think thomas kincaid just passed away um so i'm not i'm not trying to just like you know, say Thomas Kincaid was awful or something, because obviously he was a talented artist. But, but Christians so often, and and Christian artists anymore. Now that we've created this whole other category, um, Christians so often gloss over reality in their art, and what we get from it is this unrealistic perfectionism. And and I mentioned Thomas Kincaid because his pictures are always. Um, almost a utopia type thing, you know. If you go to certain stores in the mall, they're like the Thomas Kincaid store, and every picture is just pristine and beautiful. And but it's not real. Like I don't think there's really any place on the planet that looks like that, you know. And um, yeah. and this kind of glossing over, to me, it's just as untruthful as pornography. 
you know, and and I don't I don't mean to say that Kincaid was a pornographer, but the idea that that pornography is a lie, you know, it's it's taking something as beautiful as sex and it's it's making it into something that is just a distortion of what it's supposed to be and it's not making it into something of what it really should be it's making it into um an imperfect um an imperfect fantasy so to speak and so um i i hope i'm not offending anyone or maybe i hope i do offend some people i don't know <laughs> but i think we have to start thinking and i have to be careful of this myself because i'm a songwriter and for whatever reason, the songs I write, they just always come out because I'm a minister in some sort of a biblical theme, almost always. Um, but I really – I think we have to encourage in our art to write things that are challenging, to say things that are challenging. Maybe like I just said, maybe that's going to blow minds. Maybe it won't. I don't know. It's not really an original thought with me. But the idea that we have to not just um, gloss over reality – um, I want to – sorry for doing so much talking, but I want to read one other short uh, excerpt from something from Brett McCracken's blog when he's talking about Christian films. He says, I long for the day when we will have moved on from Christian film as a category. I long for the day when evangelicals will make excellent films that are beautiful, lasting, complex, and true. I long for the day when Christian moviegoers will appreciate truly great films and encounter God through them, regardless of if they are made by Christians or pagans. Um, so, you know, when I think about that, um, you know, I'm tired of, like, simple storylines that sometimes complex but not too complex yeah. That 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 have these simple answers that wrap up the plot in two hours and everybody lives happily ever after, you know. And and I'm I'm really not trying to like say derogatory things against Christian filmmakers. I know their their hearts in the right place and they're trying to do good things. And it seems like the quality is getting better. You know, you have movies like Fireproof and Courageous and different things. But the stories are just to me mediocre and lackluster, and they don't hit people where they really live. You know, like the stories in the Bible are not like that. You know, you have you have stories of God's people, and they are gritty, they are violent, they're sexually perverse at times, um, and and they're almost the things that Christian ad, Christians advocate against today. Um, and there's there's one story where recently one of my friends preached about it from Numbers 25, where um, Phineas stabs a spear through a couple as they're having sex because. <laughs> Because they had an interfaith relationship, <laughs> and I mean, it's like, whoa, that is just crazy. I mean, it's weird for one thing, but you know, God says you shall not, you know, lie with people of other faiths, and so Phineas just just goes nuts on them. He literally says he stabbed the spear and it went through them both, which is this imagery of them in bed together. And he decided, nope, we're not having that. And <laughs> And I'm just like, can you imagine if we had Christian films that dealt with actual biblical themes, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, I don't know if you had any thoughts. I've been talking for too long. I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. But Yeah, and that's where, you know, thoughts on Mel Gibson as a person aside, that's where you compare The Passion of the Christ to pretty much every other portrayal of Jesus in uh, Christian films. And what made that movie so effective um is the visceral nature, the way it didn't hold back, but really thrust you face-to-face, and look, this is what a crucifixion was like. Yeah. Uh, you know, and really, I, I think, was much more effective, ultimately, in communicating the gospel than a nice, sanitized 
uh, version of the life of Jesus where he's got, you know, blonde hair and he's walking around smiling to everyone. And, with an English you know, accent. With yeah. <laughs> he goes up on the cross, and yeah, he looks a little bit painful, but you know, it's not bad. And, yeah, uh, you can't watch the Passion of the Christ and not go, "Holy crap!" Yeah, that guy just went through hell. Yeah, uh, and I think that you're right. Uh, it, it, it's also not only the visceral nature, but as you said, the uh, simplistic nature of the plots that we're, we're putting forward. Uh, you mentioned fire, fire, I almost said firefly, that, that'd be entirely Oh, no, that's a great show. <laughs> yeah, that's a great show. That's uh, fire, another, fireproof. That's yeah. another podcast. <laughs> yeah. Fireproof and courageous as improvements, and they are improvements, but man, I, I've seen both those movies, and so, well, we still got a long way to go. I mean, yeah. let's get rid of the corny humor and uh, the pretty bad acting, and actually introduce some complexity. Uh, yeah. And to tie it back to Dark Knight, if there's one thing these films have taught us, is that you can touch on real themes uh, and deep, and even, dare I say, biblical subject matter in these movies uh, without being cutesy, without being lame, without being simplistic. Right. And I and I think, you know, people like Christopher Nolan are, are doing that. They're really um, opening some doors that I, that I think... I think Hollywood is even mystified by him a little bit, you know, just the way that he's he's thinking about things. Is um, I, if we just mention another film, which was a great, fun summer blockbuster movie this year, was The Avengers, which you know who doesn't love Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man and and Joss Whedon, of course. I just I almost feel like the guy can do no wrong, you know. When I think right. about it, but what a and you know com, to compare these two films would be like comparing a car to an airplane. I mean, they're just not the same thing at all. But yeah, um, but there there is such a depth in Nolan's work that you know some people have said I think I think they're going to be tired of of Batman and its heaviness after this because they want something fun like the Avengers and and granted I'll I'll say the Avengers was great fun it was well written it was it was an awesome story it was a spectacle and and it just simply was that but it didn't have to me themes that were going to change the world or change our thinking or that maybe I was thinking about days after if if anything i was thinking about it because i wanted to see this the whole punch thor again you know <laughs> um yep. but if you look at someone like christopher nolan's work um it really is a much heavier much more deeper thinking thing and i i i'm loath to compare like the avengers as most christian movies versus batman you know the batman trilogy that we have from christopher nolan as being maybe true art you know when we look at things like that but there is a sense in which um, Christians have been, you know, we've just sanitized things so much that maybe it's so sanitized we're not actually hitting home where real people live. Um, I I had asked several times, and, and please forgive me if I'm just beating up too much on the Christian movie industry right now, but I had asked several times uh, on my on my blog, on my podcast, different things, has anybody who isn't a Christian already seen any of these films? You know, like Fireproof yeah. or Courageous or different ones. I have I have yet to have one person who isn't already a believer that has seen this movie or engaged with it or felt like it had any sort of impact in any way. Um, people who already are Christians, it's like it's literally preaching to the choir, you know. And and that's my main problem with it is I feel like we're not engaging 
with our society if if all we're doing is just talking to ourselves and reminding ourselves I guess there can be a place for that and and there should be a place for for Christians to be able to to affirm themselves but if the calling is to make good art that is prophetic and actually um puts itself before the world then I I think our our Christian genre is falling short and there's yeah. there's a, a few you know I I would think of like songwriters who are um actually breaking molds and and going out further beyond just the Christian subgenre. I think I think of creative people like Gungor, you know, who are are making I don't know if you're familiar with their music, but they're making music that is actually dealing with things like um the love of God, it's dealing with things like homosexuality, it's dealing with things like violence and and their music is is not only extremely well crafted but their lyrics are are taking taking you to places that Christianity rarely gets into because it's not you know clean and pristine enough and um I, but but I think more than that I just I just think we ought to be out making good art and and let that speak for itself of our savior and our our god who is the most creative uh <laughs> creative uh, being we could imagine, you know, because he's instilled this in all of us. So anyway, I'm sorry I'm talking so much. Do you have any thoughts, any more thoughts about that? No, that's great. Uh, Yeah, I just really echo everything you say. I think that, you know, some people might get offended by this conversation, um, but my hope is that people, even if you don't agree, wouldn't be offended, uh, but would actually take the time to really think through the issue for raising, because I think it's an important conversation uh, for Christians to have. we need to actually look at what's the best way for us to use our art to transform the world and build God's kingdom. Um, and if you think through that conversation and, and decide the best way to do it is movies like, you know, Fireproof and Courageous, well, fair enough. But the important thing to me is that Christians are actually thinking of this and, and having these conversations uh, rather than just saying, well, this is what we do, so let's keep doing it. Sure. Well, I do want to uh, wrap up the podcast, and it's been great having you uh, with me. And I, I think when I finish our conversation, I'm just going to close with another quote by N.T. Wright. But um, is there anything that you would like listeners to know about you, Ben? Uh, I don't know if you want to refer them to maybe your church's website, and I'm not sure other than Facebook if you have a website yourself that, that you want to refer them to. But any information you'd like my listeners to have, now would be the time. Uh Let's see. No, I don't have a website for myself. Uh, you can check out the church at epiclifeonline.org. Uh, I have a little bio up there if you want to know a few more details about me. Um, but, yeah, I, I maybe go back to what you said at the beginning. The best way to connect with me is to look me up on goodreads.com. Uh, I love talking about books. Uh, I love to debate the issues books raise. So look me up there. Uh, let's start talking books, and uh, we'll get into some good deeps both science fiction and theology uh, through those conversations. Excellent. Well, it's been great having you on the podcast today. I appreciate uh, last being on the show. Yeah, I appreciate you being one of the voices in my head this week. And uh, it's been nice because so often I find myself trying to talk back to you guys on your podcast when you're having a conversation. <laughs> so I yeah. feel like this is like a dream come true that I get to actually respond to you today. So that's good. Uh, <laughs> Um, well, let me let me kind of close with this thought. This is, again, from N.T. Wright from his book Evil and the Justice of God, which you can get from IVP Press if anybody is interested in that. It's a very good book. 
And um, whether we're dealing with uh, the problem of evil with this terrible tragedy um, in Colorado or, you know, Chick-fil-A, the controversy with that this week. And I, I just want to say, come on, Christians, let's let's do better in our thinking. Let's figure out how to have a better dialogue and uh, figure out how to be artful in what we say and, and not just shout back. Um, yeah. But but the, this conclusion that he makes to one of his chapters, it says, um, I have at least indicated the enormous and exciting task which lies before us, that we are called not just to understand the problem of evil and the justice of God, but also to be a part of the solution to it. We are called to live between the cross and the resurrection on one hand and the new world on the other. And in believing in the achievements of the cross and resurrection, and in learning how to imagine the new world, we are called to bring the two together in prayer, holiness, and action within this wider world. And uh, I just think that's a, a great thought for us maybe to end this conversation on today, that it's our task to be thinking through things. If you haven't seen The Dark Knight Rises yet or any other of Christopher Nolan's films, go out and see it because it's really worth your time. So. Ben, thank you so much for being one of the voices in my head today. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. Well, I bet you want to go out and see The Dark Knight Rises again, don't you? Well, guess what? I want to go see it, too. Maybe I will. Um, I, I, I've only seen it the one time, and you know what? My birthday is Sunday, so going to be the big 3-5. Maybe I just need to go see that movie again uh, the rave theaters did send me a coupon for a free medium drink so that's going to save me what fifteen dollars isn't that what a medium drink costs at the theater well anyway thanks again to ben DeBono. uh great interview today i'm so excited about it i mean really good and i know we've gone long we're just a little over an hour and a half now so i'm going to quit talking but um thanks a lot everybody i appreciate you listening if you're enjoying the show please go to our itunes page and leave a review especially if you're not sponsoring anything uh, you're getting this podcast for free so help us out by going to the voices in my head itunes page or even the facebook page or even the uh, rickleyjames.com and leave a review helps me to know what you're thinking um, maybe there's something you 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 know want to debate about. We can actually do that because it's a blog site. You can write it in, and, and we can discuss things there. So thanks so much for being a part of this show by listening. I hope to see you at the Clifton Opera House in just a few short weeks here for Basement Psalms. Thank you so much for listening to Voices in My Head. I love you guys. Bye. You've been listening to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of Rick Lee James. If you'd like to know more about me, my ministry, my music, my life, go to my website at rickleejames.com. You can also download my free mobile app from iTunes and on the Android Marketplace. And I'd love this to be a community experience, so if you call 937-505-0162, you can leave feedback, you can give me suggestions for future shows, you can even record comments that I can play on the next podcast. So let's make this something really great together. 937-505-0162. Thank you so much for listening to Voices in My Head, the official Rick Lee James podcast. God bless.